This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Right On, showcasing the work and lives of Otago and Southland writers. Tune in for news and interviews with your local writers on the second Wednesday of every month from noon to one and repeated the following Sunday at 11am. The university bookshop is evil because it tempts me so with its otherworldly, picture-perfect, just-smell-those-books-and-breathe atmosphere, with its staff who entice me with, Oh, look, have you read this? Or have you seen that? And we know you need this. With its cruelly situated right at the front so you trip over at New Zealand new releases table. And worst of all, worst of all, with the irresistible treasures in Book Lovers Corner, the university bookshop is evil. You have been warned. Good afternoon and welcome. You're listening to Otago Access Radio and Right On with Vanda Simon, which is the show of the Otago Southland branch of the New Zealand Society of Authors and sponsored by that great team at the University Bookshop. So join us for an hour immersed in the wonderful world of books. Now, we are adventuring far and wide in today's show with my first guest chipping in all the way from London and my second guest from down south in Invercargill. So technology is brilliant to allow us to um, record interviews with people from afar, but I do apologise for um, some of the little sound quality hiccups that may occur. Craig Sisterson is a Kiwi living in London and in writing and particularly crime writing circles, he's known as New Zealand crime fiction's biggest cheerleader and not content to just support Kiwi crime writers he did something practical about it and founded the Nio Marsh Awards for crime fiction. He's recently published his own non-fiction book Southern Cross Crime which features a number of Dunedin writers and which has been shortlisted for the Crime Fest HRF Keating Award. Craig welcome to the show. Kia ora Vanda thanks so much for having me. And welcome from London, yes. <laughs> far away, I think you're my furthest travelled guest so far. Yeah, well, someone who's from close to home but just happens to be far away right now. <laughs> so kind of marooned over here. So so how did this fascination um, for you and New Zealand crime fiction start? Well, if we're just talking about crime and mystery fiction in general, I've loved that since I was a kid with the Hardy Boys and Sherlock Holmes and Agatha Christie and things like that. But when it comes to New Zealand crime, I'd read a tiny little bit, like a Paul uh, Thomas novel, and there was a Nigel Latter one and a couple of others, Simon Snow's Devil's Apple, I think. And But it wasn't until late 2008, and I'd um, done a year-long round-the-world trip backpacking through Latin America and travelling through Europe and North America. And the very first weekend, I came back. I went to the Papatoi Library in South Auckland because I was staying with someone in South Auckland for a couple of weeks till I got my own flat. And um, when I walked in, I saw uh, some just looked at the array of recently returned shelves. And there was a couple of books that caught my eye that I thought looked really interesting, authors that I hadn't heard of. They had kind of crimey kind of covers and picked up and read the back cover blurb and thought, oh, these sound really cool. So I got them out. And one was Cemetery Lake by a Christchurch author called Paul Cleave. And the other one was um, The Ringmaster by a Dunedin author called Vanda Simon that you might have heard of. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and, it was, and it was just really struck me because I really loved both the books. I thought they were both really excellent. And on that year-long round-the-world trip, I'd been reading a lot of crime fiction because I think sometimes people don't get the scale of South America. It's not like half of the Americas. It's significantly larger than North America. And so we were doing 24-hour bus rides in Argentina to go between places and things like that. So you would stock up on a couple of books to read on the way. And um, I would always get the crime novels from the kind of English language book exchanges at the hostels. So I was reading Michael Connolly and Mark Billingham and Bill McDermott and Ian Rankin and John Grisham and people like that. And... So it struck me that these two New Zealand crime novels were like, you know, they stood shoulder to shoulder with a lot of the overseas stuff I'd been reading. And also just before I'd come back, I'd had a conversation with some Canadian crime writers in an event in Canada, which I just happened upon spontaneously by chance in Vancouver. And um, chatted to a guy called Bill Deverell or William Deverell, who's a doyen of Canadian crime writing. He's written for um, kind of page and screen. And stuff. He's a, a really outstanding lawyer too. And Bill and I had talked about quality crime fiction, and he'd asked me about New Zealand crime writing. And I'd said, "Well, I'm, I actually don't know of much. You know, Naya Marsh back in the day, Paul Thomas, a few others, one-off books here and there. 
And so it was literally a couple of months later, I'm back in New Zealand and I'm reading these two really good books. And then I flicked them open and both of you had written previous books. Cemetery Lake was Paul's third, Ringmaster was your second. So it wasn't just a one-off like we'd had. And I suddenly thought, wow, wow, we've got these really cool modern New Zealand crime writers. And then, um, you know, I read a Patty Richardson book after that and a Lindy Kelly book. And then there was Neil Cross, who was Wellington-based, even though he said his books in the UK. And then Ben Sanders' book came out soon after that. And suddenly there was just a slight kind of rising tide of Kiwi crime. And it just struck me I needed to do something to help support this. So when I was reviewing and writing about other crime authors from around the world, I just made sure that I had quite a bit of coverage of New Zealand stuff too. And then I started a blog and started the awards. And then it all just kind of rolled and snowballed. So it's all your fault, Vanda, is really what it comes down to. It's all your fault. The book, Blame me, the, right? the, the, the appearing, like, I mean, I've walked through Sterling holding a flaming torch with Ian Rankin and Denise Miner and stuff. It's all of your fault. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, I think, one of the surprising things for you is that you started off as a you know, just enjoying the fiction for the sake of fiction, but then ended up getting personally involved in um, that whole crime writing scene um, to the extent where you even, like, organised a crime festival. I mean, Rotorua Noir. So how has, <laughs> how has that been, no, that how does that feel for you, thinking, gosh, I was a reader and, and now I'm doing all this? Oh, it's kind of cool overall. If I'm going to sum it up, it's pretty cool in, in a lot of ways. Um, sometimes I think I'm a little bit mad. I'm like, you know, because it takes a lot of time for, you know, you do it for love, not money and stuff like that. But, um, but it's, yeah, it's fun. It's like, you know, I was always someone from when I was a kid who, I, when I got involved in stuff that I really loved, whether it was scouts, whether it was sport, whether it was stuff at school, I kind of was, my mum said I was always a bit all or nothing. Like if I got involved with something, I'd often end up being the secretary or the president or someone who would be a volunteer and you know, I'd go to scouts and I'd volunteer with um, various groups, helping kids and helping elderly people and stuff. And so I was always someone who kind of, when I did find things that I really loved, and obviously you, you're busy in different parts of your life, but I would use my time to throw myself into them a bit more than just um, going along, you know, kind of thing. So... It was a bit like that. Um, a lot of it was accidental, but I guess it all came from a passion for it. And yeah, I mean, I'd, uh, I ended up reviewing both of your books in NZ Lawyer, which was the magazine I was writing for, a magazine for all the lawyers. And that happened by chance because someone else's review of a legal book didn't come in on deadline. And my editor turned to me and said, read any good novels lately, Craig? Can you write an article today so we can put it in for the printers? So I reviewed your and Paul's book. We got a good response. She said, oh, we should do more fiction every now and again. And that's Therese Bennington. She's a fantastic lady. And um, she's actually one of our nine marshals judges now, 10 years later, and she didn't even read crime fiction back then <laughs> and stuff. She was more into literary fiction. Now she loves both. Um, but, you know, so a lot of it was happenstance, but I guess it's happenstance when you enjoy something or you love something or you're passionate about it, when an opportunity arises, you see it and you do something about it because it's something you're interested in. And that's kind of what's happened for me is I guess I'd always had this interest. And then when I realized we had all this really great homegrown talent that was out there, but wasn't necessarily getting a lot of coverage. So when opportunities arose, I took them and did something about them. And so it was a bit spontaneous rather than planned, but at the same time, I guess it came from a place of passion. Now you mentioned earlier in the Naya Marsh Awards, um, why did you decide to start a National Crime Writing Award? <laughs> well, like anything, it's usually a few different threads that all come together at a particular time, like coalesce. So the event I went to in Canada was actually an Arthur Ellis Awards event, which is the Canadian Crime Writers Awards. I just happened to be in Vancouver for a month, and I saw a notice on the library that there was an event that night so I went along and I met these crime writers and, and that was their Canadian crime writing event. And I, you know, I, I knew when I'd come back that there was like, I'd heard of the Eggers in America and Australia had the Ned Kelly Awards and England had the Daggers and stuff. And then when I started blogging, I realized there was all these other crime awards around um, the world. And I kind of used to joke at the time back in 2008, 2009, that New Zealand was the only English speaking country without a crime awards other than maybe Belize. Um, you know, kind of thing. So, but it did seem like that, like everyone else had one. And so, you know, in the UK, if, if, a, if a really great crime novel that was really well written, like in a literary way, kind of got overlooked for the Booker Prize, it didn't really matter because there were the daggers and other awards for it. And in Australia, if a, if a 
you know, Peter Temple got overlooked for the Miles Franklin, then it didn't matter because there was the Ned Kelly's. But we didn't have anything like that in New Zealand. And the more I reviewed and the more I started reviewing for newspapers and magazines, not just Tenzin Lawyer, but others, and, you know, interviewing authors as well, I just kind of got this growing sense over about 12 or 18 months. So there was this real gap that uh, needed to be filled. And we did have genre fiction awards. There was a, you know, there's the um, Sir Julius Vogel Awards for science fiction and fantasy. And the Romance Writers of New Zealand had a really great conference. I kind of looked at them and went, okay, well, crime does seem to be a gap. It's this hugely popular all around the world. We've got these really high quality crime writers coming through and there's kind of not as much there for them as there would be if they were overseas, whether it's events or whether it's awards or an organization, you know, kind of and things like that. And it just got to that stage where I talked to publishers about it and I talked to people at, you know, party like publisher parties or Christmas parties, and everyone I talked to went, Oh yeah, that's a really great idea. And then they carried on. And so it just got to the stage of um I don't know how much I have to watch my language here on your show, sorry, but um, of uh, fudge it, I, I might as well do it myself, you know, kind of thing, and that's kind of how it happened. Uh, you know, I by that stage, I knew lots of reviewers abroad, you know, um, so we got been a reviewer in the UK for 17 years from reviewing crime fiction, and we got the vice president of the Canadian Crime Writers Association, we got the deputy editor of an Australian books magazine, so I got some really high-quality judges from the very first year. Graham Beattie from New Zealand, Bookman Beattie, who people often know, he was one of our founding judges as well. So even right from the start, you know, we didn't have a lot of prize money or anything, but I wanted it to be really, to have some mana, for want of a better phrase, you know, kind of thing, to really have some um, heft to it in terms of the judges and that they were both New Zealand and overseas judges and 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 that was, you know, a little bit so the overseas judges might talk about our book overseas. So that was for a couple of reasons, but also just bringing in an outside perspective. So it wasn't purely parochial. Um, yeah, and, and we kind of just grew from there. And now we're year 12, 12th mm. season, 12th yeah. season, yeah. And, of course, named um, after the fabulous Naya Marsh. <laughs> yeah, and it was really cool because when I started that, I, I was trying to think, you know, the – and I looked at the American awards, like the Eggers are named after Edgar Allan Poe. There's also an award called the Agatha, obviously named after Agatha Christie, which is for Melise Domestic, which is kind of a cosy writing, more so than the serial killer thriller, kind of they focus on that. And there's other awards, you know, named after people as well. So I kind of thought, well, who in New Zealand it makes sense to be Nio, and it's kind of a cool name, you know, it's the Nio Marsh Awards. And people around the world either remember Nio Marsh fondly um, she's still very well liked in the UK and the US, almost more so than in New Zealand. So very um, kind of people remember her, but also it's kind of an interesting name. And it's, you know, the kind of word it is, it's kind of a little bit kind of, you know, associated with New Zealand. It's not a name that you see all around the world or anything like that. So it was good on a number of reasons. And I was fortunate enough, she kind of died without ears or anything like that. But I got in touch with what we believed was her closest living relative, who was a great nephew. I might have it slightly wrong, my second cousin. And he kind of gave us our blessing and said he thought she would love it and so kind of gave us our blessing to use her name. I I don't know if we needed that, but I felt better asking for it, you know, kind of thing. And, um, yeah, so that was really cool. That's fantastic. Now let's talk about your book. Um, So the book (laughs) is called Southern Cross Crime, The Pocket Essential Guide to the Crime Fiction, Film and TV of Australia and New Zealand. How did this project come about for you? Well, um, again, you know, it's a co- kind of coalescing of a lot of factors all at once. So I've been writing about uh, New Zealand crime writers and also a lot of Australians because I started writing for an Australian magazine almost from the start in 2009. Um, so I've been writing about Australian and New Zealand crime writers for almost a decade. And uh, I was over here and there's a really interesting series um, done by a publisher called Old Castle Books, No Except Press, who are my publisher. And um, so the, they had a Nordic noir book, an American noir book, and a kind of Brit noir book, Euro noir, looking at French and German crime writing. And there's a guy called Barry Forshaw, who's a really excellent reviewer, who's been around for a long time here, he writes for the Financial Times and The Independent and many others, chairs a lot of, you know, crime festival events. is really well known. And I met Barry at some of the events over here since I've been here, and he's been very kind to me. And uh, one day I kind of said to him, oh, Barry, you know, it would be cool because he'd asked me, he started actually using me as a researcher for some of his books. He would 
flick me lists and say, if I missed, you know, is there anyone else you think should really be covered for like his new one? And I would help out just a tiny, tiny bit. Yeah. And um, so I said to him one day, you know, you really should do one on Australia and New Zealand crime writing. He said, no, Craig, you should. And, and he introduced me to his publisher and kind of that's kind of how it happened. He was Barry was really supportive, really kind to kind of, um, you know, bring me into the series. And I, so I've, you know, my book's modeled largely on his, but I have gone my own way in a couple of ways. Uh, I've included uh, children's and young adult crime writing, which isn't included in the other books in the series, because, you know, I fell in love with the Hardy Boys and Secret Seven and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, other people I know, I, you know, I talk to Karen Slaughter or someone like that, or Kathy Rikes, and they'll rave about Nancy Drew, you know, kind of thing, where other people rave about Famous Five. So for a lot of us, it's the juvenile books that get us into it. And I didn't want to overlook those. So, you know, we've got, uh, you know, Otago's own Ella West is in there. We talk about her books, her Rainfall and and Night Vision, which are excellent books. And, you know, they're kind of young adult um, or juvenile in the crime writing. And there's some really great other New Zealand authors. Brian Faulkner is doing some great stuff. Um, Helen Vivian Fletcher does a lot of really cool things as well. And so we've got some really awesome uh, Elaine Merriman as well. There's a whole lot. I mean, I could go on. There's a whole section <laughs> kind of thing. But we have, so I wanted to include that. And then I included these kind of longer form uh, interview chapters with um, about a dozen or 13 kind of crime writers. Um, so, you know, Jane Harper and Michael Robotham, Paul Cleese yourself, Liam McIlvenny from Dunedin as well. And um, kind of just giving people a even greater understanding of what was going on down here. And because I came from a background of doing newspaper and magazine feature articles for weekend newspapers. And so I kind of wanted to bring a little bit of that into the book rather than just being kind of in a, a more readable encyclopedia, you know, kind of thing. So, and you do kind cover, of how it came about. So. You do cover a lot of Australian and New Zealand writers. Yeah. Over 200 individual writers um, are mentioned in there how on earth did you decide or track them all down <laughs> well as I say I've been I've been um <coughs> sorry excuse me as I say I've been um kind of reviewing for 10 12 years by the time I was submitting this book um so I was and I'd always tried to keep my finger on the pulse even when I moved to the UK obviously with the Naya Marsh Awards I had to keep my finger on the pulse of everything that's happening in New Zealand and uh also in Australia I was a Ned Kelly Awards judge one year when I was over here and you know often featured Australian writers as well as New Zealand ones for overseas magazines and so I kind of already had a decent working knowledge of a lot of it you know of, I could write down a few hundred authors you know a couple of 300 and then I um, you know did some research to find ones that I wasn't aware of I also I, so I started making myself some big lists and the horrible thing whenever you're doing something like this whether you're doing a list of 10 Kiwi authors to try or you're doing a book that includes 250 authors is no matter what you're always going to be missing some people out you just can't fit everyone in or you fit everyone in and you write a sentence about them or you or you can write more about people if you you know do that and so i um i kind of say to people i was trying to be comprehensive not definitive is kind of what i was aiming for um, you know and i think i largely achieved that there'll always be someone that people think should have been there that isn't so the the david awards shortlists and winners and finalists and the same with the ned kelly awards and the naya marsh awards of course and other awards you know children's and the young adult awards that might have been crime or thriller titles and so i looked at all of that and then included a whole lot of other people that i thought might have been overlooked or all predated like the naya marsh awards only started 2010 and my book starts in 1995 coverage the last 25 years so i was you know including people like paul thomas and nigel Lanner and others and um and then i sent the list to some reviewers that i trusted in australia sent it to sisters in crime um, australia lindy cameron and others and just went you know have i are there any glaring misses here and they gave some suggestions many of which were included and stuff and uh and so kind of yeah that was kind of how the list came about and then of course you put it into the publisher and um, and then it gets pushed back. So, you know, it takes six months to publish. It gets pushed back another six months for COVID. So by the time it comes 
out. It's a year after you wrote it and, and you know, Girl on the Moon has come out and, and, and everything else. So you're sitting there going, well, I would have included them if I'd known, you know, and OA by Becky Manuatu's come out and things like that. And, yeah, so you can never uh, you can never nail it exactly, but I did my best. So, <laughs> so having done this, um, this, this book about antipathy and crime writing and with your knowledge internationally, now how does antipathy and crime writing compare with the rest of the world? From a quality standpoint, it's excellent. Like we have a lot of really amazing writers. Um, I've always found it curious in New Zealand, we not only accept, but we actually expect our sports people to be world beaters and the best in the world. And, and, and not just rugby, but with, and a lot of other sports, whether it's rowing and softball, and we have a lot of world champions and things. And we kind of, we not only go, oh yeah, I that's, you know, that's understandable. We even expect it, you know, kind of thing. And then with other things and, and the arts, and it's not just crime, it's, it's our literary authors and other things. And prior to Lord of the Rings and other things, we were about the same with our film and we've been the same with our music, though that's got better over the years as well, over the course of my lifetime, is that we almost think there's this kind of underlying thing that stuff from overseas is automatically better than ours. And it's just simply not the case. Um, I read very widely. I read a lot of translated crime fiction and Latin American and African and Asian crime fiction. There's great crime writing from all over the world, not just the US and the UK. And Australia and New Zealand is incredibly strong. We have some amazing writers, which doesn't surprise me in hindsight, though at this time I didn't know we had many when I started doing this 12 years ago. But it makes sense, you know. Um, we good storytellers and stuff like that. And we've got a really strong relationship with the land in both countries. And so there's a really strong sense of setting and place in our genre fiction as well as our literary fiction. Interesting sense of humor, a different way of looking at the world because we're a little bit at a distance, which is a lot of the time when you're writing novels, you, you have those characters who are kind of inside or outside of status or they're at a little bit of a distance. And we're kind of a little bit at a distance in a global sense. So um, there's a lot of really great things. And, you know, we've got really talented writers. We've got amazing, you know, Margaret May, he's one of the all-time best children's authors in the world. Lindley Dodd with Harry McCleary, you know, our screenwriters and stuff like that. We've got these amazing literary um, novelists. Not, I mean, Ali Cadden and that have obviously, and Lloyd-Jones have, have kind of got overseas accolades. But there's a whole lot of other great writers in New Zealand. Rachel King wrote some amazing books and Paula Morris and, and Steph, you know, Steph Mataku. And, and, you know, there's a whole, you, the list just goes on and on. We have some amazing writers. I obviously love crime fiction and I focus on the crime writers, but I'm also very aware and very supportive of all these other amazing writers we have in New Zealand. And they stand shoulder to shoulder with really good authors from all around the world. We should feel no cultural cringe, just as we, just as we accept and expect our sports people and some other areas to do really well on the global stage, it's the same with our creative arts people. So does the future look good for New Zealand crime fiction writing? I hope so. <laughs> I think so, but I'm a bit of a positive person. So, you know, um, you know, publishing and business and everything, it's a fickle world. And, you know, there, there are people who become smash hits. There are other people who are just write something just as good and don't. And it's nothing to do. Yes, nothing's ever a pure meritocracy. You know, there's. I always remember thinking when I was younger that we had these great New Zealand rock bands because I was into rock music. We had these great New Zealand rock bands that if they were in America, they would have been, you know, globally massive. They didn't happen to be, so they weren't, you know. But at the same time, there's a whole ton of American rock bands who are really good and get no notice. So it's not just a geographic thing, you know. It's just the nature of these things. But, you know, we've got some amazing voices coming through. Uh, we've had over... We started the Debut Novel Award in 2016, so basically five years, five, six seasons, but five years. And we've had 70, 80, 100, yeah, kind of between 70 to 80, you know, new authors come along just in that time as debutants. That's not including the people like Nalini Singh who don't count as debutants because they've already written other novels. So there's a whole swathe of them as well coming from other genres. So we've got this real influx of fresh, exciting voices, plus, you know, um, people like yourself coming back to it after a breakaway with your PhD, Paul Cleave, just Paul Cleave's new book's amazing. The Quiet People, anyone listening to this, if you like crime fiction, go and buy The Quiet People. It's just hit stores last week. It's amazing. It's a fantastic book. You know, Ben Sanders is doing some really cool stuff and he's been around, you know, he's been around for 10 years and he's still only 30. You know, he's, he's still younger now. 
than Michael Connolly and Val McDermott were when they started and they've been writing for 30 years. And Ben has written six books now, seven, seven books now, and he's still younger than when they started. He's just going to get better and better. JP Pamari is amazing. Melbourne-based Kiwi, but he's fantastic. We've got um, Nikki Crutchley's doing some really cool things. So there's just, just, you know, at the start when I started The Knives, there was that little concern in the back of my mind. It's like, well, if, if Paul and Vander and Patty and Paul Thomas and Neil Cross, you know, if they don't keep going a book a year, are we going to have, you know, really good quality finalists every year and but you know it hasn't been an issue there's been new authors you know charity norman's come through and nikki crutchley's come through and you know cheryl clark last year renee and oh yeah 89 year old absolute legend of new zealand storytelling it starts writing crime novels at 89 you know kind of thing so it's we've got uh it's a really cool community and i'm i'm really stoked to be like a little part of it and stuff like that it's pretty cool Great. Hey, thank you, Craig, so much for coming on the show and talking about crime fiction and New Zealand crime writing and internationally. And all the very best um, with the book, uh, Southern Cross Crime, which, you know, if for those out there who want a, a go-to resource to find some great names of authors to go and find their books, and certainly grab it and have a look. And we will hopefully get to see you on New Zealand shores sometime soon. <laughs> Yeah, hopefully. God, I miss you guys. Give my homeland a hug for me. Um, yeah, it's, I had to cancel a trip back last year because of COVID and then a second planned trip. So um, hopefully not too long now. Uh, yeah, I'm, I miss home. You know, I'm grateful for the things I get to do in the UK, but I'm just a New Zealander who doesn't happen to live there at the moment. Yeah. Fabulous. Thanks so much, Greg. We're going to take a short music break. Back soon.
The university bookshop is evil because it tempts me so with its otherworldly, picture-perfect, just-smell-those-books-and-breathe atmosphere, with its staff who entice me with, Oh, look, have you read this? Or have you seen that? And we know you need this. With its cruelly situated right at the front so you trip over at New Zealand new releases table. And worst of all, worst of all, with the irresistible treasures in Book Lovers Corner, the university bookshop is evil. You have been warned. Welcome back. You're listening to Otago Access Radio and right on with Vanda Simon, which is the show of the Otago Southland branch of the New Zealand Society of Authors and sponsored by the fabulous University Bookshop. Amanda Nelly is a Southland-based author and founder of Right Answers, a consultancy in all aspects of book production. And she's recent release, recently released with Les Hales, Just Cause and Effect, Selenium Deficiency in New Zealand. Amanda, welcome to the show. Thank you, Violet. It's lovely to be here. Well, let's start by talking about Right Answers, which is your writing business, as it were, and, you know, based out of Invercargill for this business. How did this whole idea of doing like a one-stop shop come about? Well, really, it started my, my background was journalism, um, and I'd reached the point in early 2000s where I was um, over over journalism as it was, but I wasn't over Southland. I wanted to stay here, and the only way to kind of do that um, was really to create my own business to, to do it within. So I started. Um, right answers formally in 2005 and that was a public relations and marketing business but the beauty about owning your own business is it does whatever you want it to um, so later on um, when I became far more interested in people than working with businesses I was able to massage that business um, into one that, that did books and biographies and those kinds of things so the focus then changed, therefore, um, after that to writing books, including, um, I believe, like your own works and memoirs, that kind of thing. So how did it help your ability to do your own writing? Um, well, I guess, I mean, it, I, I spent 10 years as a journalist and there is, um, it's a brutal process. Every day people tell you, how badly you've done, really. Um, the whole <laughs> editing process is, <laughs> is uh, you, you learn to take criticism really, really well, but you also learn to refine what you're doing really, really well. Um, and working for corporate clients in a marketing and PR space, of course, you're refining things in a different way and you get an ability then to be a little bit more creative with what you do. When I started working with Individuals, because I've always been interested in other people's stories. So when I started writing um, biographies, there was more of an opportunity, I guess, to um, to play around with that a wee bit, um, with, with the way that you told stories. Um, you, interestingly, you had more space to work with them. Um, one of the things that journalism taught you was how to write very, very tight. And one of the things I learnt post-journalism was that, in some cases, I was writing too tight. Um, there wasn't enough room for readers to breathe. Um, so that was an adaptation that I had to retrain myself in um, once I once I started in, in another field. Now, through Right Answers, you know, you've produced a number of books um, for other people and in, in collaboration with them and they're, they're Southland books and stories so now how rewarding has this been for you to bring a taste of Southland and put it out there? Oh, absolutely absolutely huge so the first biography I actually wrote was um, a friend approached me and he was concerned that his mother was getting elderly and he didn't want to um, lose her history as it were and he asked if I'd work with his mother in a biography, and I was kind of a bit hesitant because that wasn't really my core business. But I said I would, I would meet his mother, and she turned out to be an absolutely lovely woman. Now her story was never published as such; it was just for the family. Um, and several years later, she died. You know, like most people, I don't cope with death terribly well, but I was at her funeral, and it was huge, particularly for an elderly person because she was just the most warm, loving person imaginable. Um, 
And at that funeral, I actually felt really good. I felt that I'd I'd given um, contributed something really positive because I've I've managed to keep her story for her family. Um, I'd also managed to keep um, for her family and also for me a most amazing repertoire of uh, farmers' wife recipes. Mm. Um, you cannot beat a thousand farmers' wife. So <laughs> well, legendary. Yes, during the writing process, um, every week we'd meet up and we'd talk about different aspects of her history and she would always do the most amazing afternoon tea. So at the end of it, I got all of the children to put in their favourite recipe request and we'd test kitchen those because um, Alison had never written any of her recipes down, she just made them. <laughs> it wasn't an easy thing to do. Um, and we included those in her, in her biographies. Um, and they're still favourite recipes in my household today. <laughs> it's lovely. And through Right Answers, of course, um, and these collaborations, you came across Les Hale. So, you know, your book, Just Cause and Effect, Selenium Deficiency in New Zealand, is written with Les. Um, how did you meet him? How did that collaboration come about? That was one of those really weird coincidences, actually, because um, I think... Yellow Pages was just going to an evolution and somebody approached me about advertising on Yellow Pages, which I've never done before, and I never did since. So for a five-minute window, I had a Yellow Pages ad, um, and Liz Hale stumbled across it. Um, so when we first met, I wasn't completely sure whether he was a, 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 a delightful old crackpot. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so we did have that bit at the start on the um, this is all a very new process and um, as I looked at, 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 at his research I looked at what he wanted to achieve um, initially he thought perhaps he wanted to write an academic paper and I've done some editing in that respect as well but when we looked at what he wanted to achieve it sounded like he needed a broader audience um, and then I also thought that his story was important enough that it needed a traditional publisher would, would get better reach. So I did make some approaches about that, and I got told due to his age that no traditional publisher would, would look at him, which was a huge shock to me. That um, feels astonishing. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it was. Um, and apparently the reason for that was that um, because of his age and the likelihood that he might die by the end of the project, um, that he wouldn't be available for promotional purposes. So that's when we made the decision that I would be a co-author rather than um, a ghostwriter, as it were. Mm. So hedging, hedging that if, if something happened to me, that I'd be able to carry on and speak. Um, and as, as it happened, he did, in fact, die right at the end of the process. So um, that is why I am now speaking heavily to this book instead of Liz. Mm. So in Just Cause and Effect, um, it makes, um, you know, we're talking about the book and its contents now, it makes many claims of linkages to um, conditions, health conditions and selenium deficiency. Now, you have that background as a journalist and that critical eye. Now, how satisfied were you in the robustness of the research behind what Liz had been working on in the claims? Oh, oh, hugely. Um, now, I, I, was, I had the benefit, too, of, of some doctors who I pre-scanned into peer-reviewing um, my medical writing because, obviously, my, my aim was to write a book which had high um, readability and was easy to understand by a lay person. But, as we know, there's a huge risk that when you reduce something down and simplify it, you could simplify it to the point that it's wrong. Um, so it was really important to me that the medical stuff was being checked and peer-reviewed um, by doctors who could say, actually, no, you've gone too far or you've, you've moved into different places. Now, on a couple of occasions um, in a couple of chapters, um, heart disease was certainly one of them, and I think viruses was another, my uh, medical reviewers would come back and say, hang on a minute, you've made a mistake here. And I'd go, okay, have I? Um, and then they would go away and do some other research and then they would come back and say, no, you haven't made a mistake, um, but that's not taught within New Zealand. Um, and there were points of the book where they were becoming quite angry because they, they were New Zealand trained um, and believed that this was knowledge that they should have, that they should have had earlier. Um, so, yes, I'm, I'm 
pretty comfortable or very comfortable. And, and if I wasn't, I, I wouldn't have included. Um, Yes, because you know one of the questions was going to be, you know, in this world of um, Facebook, and you see so many Facebook opinions just out there. Um, getting that factual accuracy behind it must have been important. So, um, what view was it, for example, to include a bibliography, which makes my little researcher heart very happy? <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Yes, um, yeah, that, that that was a. Yeah, a, a, a critical a critical part of it. I mean, and, and as somebody has pointed out, that so a lot Liz was doing a lot of its research, um, and a lot of his earlier research didn't end up being included because it had been replaced by better and later later research. Um, but he was doing research using the internet to research at a time when the internet was actually much easier to use to research. Mm. Um, nowadays, the way search engines have evolved. Um, as somebody pointed out, it would be difficult for Liz to begin that project now because search engines take you into all kinds of weird places yeah. um, and deliver a whole lot of rubbish. So, so he had the actually for him starting so long ago and having such a long lead in was an advantage. I think so. Yes, yes. As I say, somebody has pointed out, and I think they're quite right that um, it would be nearly impossible um, for a lay person, as Liz was at that time to actually sensibly get the internet to deliver good information now. Um, And I know sometimes I've I've gone looking for information knowing that it exists and you still can't find it. (laughs) (laughs) Frustrating. Now, Les himself, his background was being a Southland farmer, so um, he'd made many observations over the years. And... Many New Zealanders will be aware that New Zealand's soils are, you know, have a deficiency of selenium in them. Can you just talk a wee bit then about you know part of the premise for this book, which was you know the green revolution um, and how that exacerbated the problems of selenium deficient soils and moved on into our diet and food chain. Well, I'll, I'll preface this by telling you a little bit more about Liz because Liz was always. Um, adamant that the book not be about him and indeed um, in one of the editing phases and Liz was very involved you know, with editing throughout but one of the editing phases pointed out some errors um, and it was Liz's sister who pointed them out and they were all to do with Liz's life so in an early version got the wrong school, his daughter had the wrong name um, and this, this was an aspect of Liz paying absolutely no attention to the things that were about him <laughs> <laughs> Because he really thought that the book um, was, and, and of course I was arguing that his viewpoint was critical. So one of the things that didn't make the books was that Liz was actually ducks of his school. I mean, he was a very, very smart man. Mm. Um, and his ability to to deduce different things was, um, was as people have said to me later, I haven't read the book, was, um, was incredible what he managed to, to link together here. Um, but yes, so the Green Revolution um, came along, it hit New Zealand in 1960, and it was, when we, it was a change in, um, in wheat farming, or in all-grain farming really. So the idea, in 19, well, while we are really concerned today um, about global warming, that's our generational challenge, through the 1940s and 50s, the generational challenge was how to feed a growing population of people. And the Green Revolution was designed to answer that uh, by increasing the yield of grains. Now, of course, when you increase the growth of something, um, you, you reduce the nutrition level of it. And that was something that they really didn't understand in 19, 1950s and 60s. So in New Zealand, these new seeds arrived in 1960s. They came in at the same time as a, a government change which said that we will not import anything that we can grow ourselves. So farmers were actually um, given a blank cheque to grow grain. And unfortunately for New Zealand, the, the best places to grow grain were Southland and Canterbury, both of which are quite deficient in selenium. So although we grew bumper crops here, um, it was... Um, food that was actually known at the time to not be fit for animal consumption because in those days they knew that animals needed selenium but they didn't know that people needed it Um, so we fed these very deficient crops um, to people 
and we carried on doing that for 25 years. Which is quite astonishing when you um, when you think about it that we inadvertently depleted the nutrient levels in our population. Yes, yeah. Um, I, I think I think what um, well what got me while I was writing this was not so much that we did that because we, uh, perhaps you know there's always unintended consequences, but then when when people tried to signal that this might be a problem and there were people who did. Um, but it just got elbowed out to the side and nobody paid proper attention to it. Um, and that's one of the other interesting things as I've going through this book and it hopefully comes through is um, there are people who are doing research, they're doing really, really good research and they're all throughout New Zealand and around the world, but it's really hard for that information to actually get into the mainstream. Because um, if, if we're reading stories about science example that make it into newspapers, they're usually things like cow farts or sexy sheep or, you know, mm. stupid <laughs> stupid stuff instead of um as I say perhaps more meaningful stuff. Mm. And um, the, I was quite astonished the examples you gave of the time lags between you know scientific research being done and then when that information did get through to the people who make policy changes, if it got mm. through. Yes. Yeah, that's, that, that's quite, and I think that says a lot to the state of our lobby groups in New Zealand, because um, there are all kinds of things that um, could be fixed relatively easier, easily, but the loudest voice in a government ear is something that's going to protect an industry that makes a lot of money out of the status quo. Mm. Um, and it's very, very hard for... Um, Intelligent kind of research stuff to make its way through that through that loud screaming voice of the um, of the lobby group. And of course, this was also happening at a time when um, you know diet was being examined, but far more in the context of you know you must reduce fats and you know increase grains and food pyramids rather than looking at um, mineral deficiencies or what was in the food. So it almost was a perfect storm, wasn't it? I think so, yes, because people, people um, it, as somebody was pointing out at, a, at an event I was just last night, was saying, well, this was a thing that sort of cured itself in 1988 when we started using, you know, re-importing Australian wheat, so why is this a problem? Um, but it's a, it's a cumulative problem. Um, and, of course, at the same time, we have people who are um, consuming far less um, bread and grain products now than they ever have before. Um, and part of that sort of the dietary trends, um, part of that's because the growing number of people who identify with having some kind of gluten sensitivity. Um, so, uh, uh, and part of that is also that we've been actively encouraged by a, a pretty dominant food industry and marketing industry to consider food um, as a calorific fuel source as opposed to being um, a building block. Mm. Now, just cause and effect, you talk about the flow and effects of selenium deficiency in many prominent and complex health issues from cot death and asthma to depression to heart disease and cancer and viral infections. Now, when you first started talking with Les, you know, how surprised were you at the connections? Um, I think because I, we started, as I say, we wrote each chapter as a chapter, so we kind of... And as you see within the book, they kind of lead from one to another, and it's pretty much as we um, as we approached it. And there's some things that aren't in there because, as you said, we just need to finish the book. So there are other effects. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there are now studies linking um, selenium deficiency to diabetes, for example. That's something that we didn't cover. And one of the first impacts that we also didn't cover because all of this was anecdotal. We really couldn't find any research suggesting this was um, was bad back. The proliferation of bad back sort of through the seventies and eighties. Because one of the things, one of the reasons we give selenium to animals is um, to help muscle attachment, um, grow nice big strong muscles. So of course, um, it won't kill you, but <laughs> but if you're low in selenium, your muscle tone is going to be reduced. So you are going to have um, more back problems, more aches and strains, and those kinds of things. Mm. Now, so, yeah, so there's, 
did more effects than we wrote about. <laughs> and no, you, you mentioned um, earlier that once we started importing grain again, that helped address the problem to some extent. Um, have there been any other measures uh, to help address selenium deficiency in New Zealand? Well, again, since writing the book, and it's, I mean, it's lovely that it's out there because it means that people can start feeding back and they can start, start saying, hey, there's these other areas that we that we didn't know about or new research that we didn't find. So apparently you can now get a blood test. You have to pay for it yourself um, that, that measures the um, serum selenium, your own independent serum selenium level. And if your level is between 1.6 and 1.9, that is optimum, and you can you will have a 50% reduction in your risk of developing cancers. Apparently, um, we don't know what the average selenium um, level in New Zealand is, but it's believed to be um, again because it hasn't been researched. It's believed to be p- between 0.4 and and 1.2. Um, so even the best case scenario is still not enough for for optimum. Mm. Um, and and, is, I, and um, I mean, it, it would be helpful even if, if 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 GPs even knew or if people knew that they could test for this and assess their own level. <laughs> That, that in itself would be a starting point. Because mm. you know, one of my questions was going to be, you know, what can an individual do to help yeah. address you know, any potential issue they may have? Yeah, and as I say, the starting point would be to, um, to as I say, whether you just want to take a selenium supplement or, um, which is obviously where I started, when I started working with Les, I thought, okay, we'll try this. And what was interesting was, um, I've been diagnosed with glandular fever, which is unusual because I've been told that that was something only children, you know, teenagers have. Um, but I was diagnosed at, in my early 40s and I got sick easily. You know, if I stayed up too late, if I got up too early, if I worked too long, I would get sick and I would take a long time to recover. So when I met Liz, I started taking selenium and I kind of realised that actually I was becoming more robust. <laughs> my, my, I, I was getting sickness often and, and my sickness was less severe and that was great. Um, and as time went on, um, when I was reading new studies, it was like my supplementation wasn't high enough, so I increased my supplementation um, and my health improved again. I used to get everything. Um, mm. <laughs> Every little bug, yeah. I, I would, I would get, and, and now I, I don't. Um, so. Great. Well, thanks, Amanda, so much for coming on the show today and talking about your and Liz Hale's books, Just Cause and Effect, Selenium Deficiency in New Zealand, and all the very best with your future Right Answers endeavours. Thank you, Vanda. Well, that is the show for this month. So thanks for listening in. And also thanks to my guests, Craig Sisterson, talking about Southern Cross Crime and Amanda Nelly talking about just cause and effect, selenium deficiency in New Zealand. So join us again next month for another hour of delving into that wonderful world of books. But until then, enjoy lots of great reading. The University Bookshop is evil because it tempts me so with its otherworldly, picture-perfect, just-smell-those-books-and-breathe-atmosphere, with its staff who entice me with, Oh, look, have you read this? Or have you seen that? And we know you need this. With its cruelly situated right at the front so you trip over at New Zealand new releases table. And worst of all, worst of all, with the irresistible treasures in Book Lover's Corner, the University Bookshop is evil. You have been warned. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.